Hello! As you may know, if you visit our website, we're right at the end of Abjuration Week here at Necromancers of the Northwest, a theme week devoted to the alphabetically first school of magic, Abjuration, which you may be familiar with as the school devoted to protection and wards and occasionally imprisoning things. So, uh, naturally, when we were looking for something to review for this week, we first thought of Abjuration Spells. Unfortunately, we couldn't find a book devoted purely to abjuration spells, not that we looked that hard. So, instead, we've got another book for you, which Josh here will tell you all about. The book is called Wright Publishing Presents 101 First Level Spells by Stephen D. Russell. And the title pretty much sums the book up. It's a collection of first level spells for all the core rulebook classes that uh, cast spells, you know, Sorcerer, Wizard, and all them. And uh, the book itself begins with a credit page where all the people who assembled the PDF have been giving clever titles like Archmage or Master of Illusionist with their more appropriate and descriptive titles included in parentheticals like Head Designer or Lead Artist. Anyway, after the credits page, the book goes on for a short introduction, uh, which is really more of a foreword, and as far as these kinds of things goes, it's pretty much par for the course. The uh, chief designer, he talks a little bit about why he did the product, and uh, it really doesn't say a whole lot of anything groundbreaking there. Uh, same page includes some bios on the lead designer and some of the other key members, but you'll probably skip over those if you actually bought the book for the spellcasting content. Anyway, as you go through the book, I found the presentation to be quite... I mean, it's good. The pages, they feature a, a border, which is laden with faux magic runes. Looks good. Uh, the whole book is uh, black and white, including the art, of which there's a fair portion. I mean, it's you know quite, uh, quite reasonable. The art itself is also quite reasonable. It's good, but not great. And all the pieces are keyed to specific spells on the page, which is nice, but it's a little bit hokey. So, uh, the art itself is done, the cover is nice, but if you were going to buy a book called 101 First Level Spells, you probably could care a little bit less about the, uh, the art and details. And what you really want to know about is the spells, I'm sure. So the book does contain 101 new spells, I counted, uh, just to make sure. And that can be something of a daunting task if you want to actually use the book, because you've got to now dig through 101 spells, which uh, is really quite unpleasant from start to finish. Thankfully, uh, they do include spell lists, which are obviously the handy tool here. And looking at those, they're pretty complete, even though there's a lot of overlap in, uh, in some places. The lists all feel well-defined and uh, that they make good sense for the classes they're attached to in every case. Uh, and that, combined with the, uh, the good bookmarking, does make it easy enough to find the spells you're actually interested in. It would be nice if they had links, but they don't, and uh, it's understandable that would be a lot of work for 101. With there being 101 spells, I'm not going to review them individually. We're going to go ahead and take a, uh, take a look at a few of the spells I feel are most important. Uh, since it's Abjuration Week, we're going to go ahead and, uh, and start with a new Abjuration spell. The spell in question is Valiant Resolve. Uh, it's a good spell, I think, to open with because it's quite confusing and, uh, and perhaps a little bit overpowered. Uh, 
The, uh, the short text description, the one you get in the spell list, uh, informs you that the spell provides you with uh, damage reduction over non-lethal damage, meaning that you would, uh, or over lethal damage, meaning you would only suffer non, or you wouldn't suffer non-lethal damage. See, I'm quite confused by the spell. Uh, when you actually get to uh, get to the spell description, however, which is quite short, uh, explains that you get damage reduction over non-lethal damage, um, which would be uh, which would be quite good uh, naturally to receive DR 10 at first level, uh, even if it is a relatively short duration. Since the uh, since the forward I mentioned earlier, predictably spent a long time talking about making spells that were both. Uh, were both fun and uh, and quite uh, quite balanced. I feel that the spell really kind of falls down in both respects. Because while having uh, not being affected by non-lethal damage is is mechanically okay, uh, it's really rather boring. It's kind of stale and it's not going to come up very often. And having the art ten at level one is going to be qu- quite powerful. Uh, so I wish I knew which way it was for sure, so I could tell you. I suspect it's that you uh, that you only take lethal, but I couldn't say for sure. Another abstraction spell that suffers from uh, from being kind of on the uh, on the downside is a uh, is a new spell, new I would put in quotations called Lesser Dispel Magic, uh, which like a lot of the spells in this book is a watered-down version of existing higher-level spells. Uh, in the case of Lesser Dispel Magic, it functions exactly like Dispel Magic, except for you can only get a caster-level bonus of up to plus five when you would have access to Dispel Magic. Uh, this is uh, is something a lot of people have attempted before to give you a lesser version of Dispel Magic, and it's a reasonable execution of it. It's basically just going, here's Dispel magic starting at level one instead of at level five for wizards. But personally, I would have liked to see a lesser version of dispel magic offer a lesser effect. You know, you can't uh, you can't dispel the whole range, or you can't target them. I mean, that's what I would have wanted to see here, and it just doesn't stand up. There are a couple of other examples of uh, of spells like this throughout the book, and uh, it's a little bit disappointing to be honest with you. But, I mean, there are 101 spells, so you got to like, expect a little bit of that. Uh, the last abjuration spell I want to talk about is another one I have a minor complaint with. is uh, is called Lesser Ward, which uh, I actually actually I quite like the spell, to be honest with you. I think it's uh, it's fun, at least on paper. It lets you ward off an area with a triggered ward, which can do damage or release a spell effect, a level one harmful spell effect. But I suspect that throughout the, uh, the series of 101 spells of X level, they're going to have better versions, which would be a lot more fun to play with. Uh, no, my, my complaint here actually is uh, is artistic in nature. You see the cover art is the art uh, here, and I just think that, that, was, uh, that that's not really uh, very good, because the cover art should be special, and it isn't. Uh, like I said, a minor complaint. Uh, moving on from Abjuration, I have a few other spells I want to talk about, the first of which is Alter Liquid a spell that all the uh, dedicated casters, bard, cleric, druid, and sorcerer wizard have access to, uh, at least according to their uh, to their spell list at the beginning. When you get to the spell, you discover that, that cleric is not included in the block. I'm not sure where the editation mistake is, but uh, there you have it. Uh, the spell itself is, uh, is fun. I think it's uh, interesting. It turns one, uh, one mundane liquid into another. 
uh, with some restrictions, so you can't get acid or anything that's going to be too too dangerous. You can't turn it into mercury or a poison or anything like that. But you can turn you know water into wine or water into beer uh, or beer into water if you were backwards and crazy. Uh, and you could also do some uh, some neat things if you're clever. Turn the uh, blood at a crime scene, for example, into uh, into something harmless like water, so that uh, that when you removed the body, there was little to no trace of your crime. And I'm sure there's a lot of other clever applications out there. So overall, I think the spell is a winner. It is uh, it is entertaining enough, and it's certainly not overpowered. So I think they uh, they did a good job with that. Uh, another spell I uh, I actually quite like was Contingent Minor Healing. This spell, when you take a certain amount of damage, is four, in fact. You, uh, you heal one hit point, which is, uh, which is neat for the duration of the effect. It doesn't stack, obviously, so if you take 40, you don't heal 10. Uh, but I, I like the concept for the spell, and I would like to see it replicated in a more powerful version, uh, which uh, I, I suspect is something we would be seeing in the rest of the series. Another spell that was, uh, that was cool, uh, though not overpowered, was, uh, was Torchbearer which summons a sort of squat little undefined humanoid thing with a torch. Uh, the thing doesn't fight, but it does have AC for, uh, for being hit and hit points, so it can be fought. And uh, it does ward off animals because it's creepy looking, which I thought was a nice little flavorful touch. And it, uh, it provides a little you know toady to wander you around with a torch, and who would not want that? Uh, they have uh, the spell Briefly Visible is one of those spells that it's basically a watered-down version of Invisibility Purge. Is uh, In that respect, I don't like it very much, but as someone who's had some trouble in the past with monsters that could become invisible at will, uh, especially at low levels when that imp is just going to be annoying you, uh, th- this would be a great spell to have access to, and I think it was a good inclusion overall. Uh, and then, uh, then just so that you don't get the impression that all the non-abjuration spells are, uh, are are fun and good, they have one called Foe's Measure, which uh, which I, I don't really like because it uh, it tells you things like what class levels it has, what its hit dice are, how many it has, and that that kind of scan spell just does not really work very well in D and D. It it doesn't work well at the fourth wall to know somebody's a sixth level fighter, um, and it's. It, it sort of just detracts from the whole mystery and fun of the game, I think, at the table to know what exactly abilities, because of your metagame knowledge, that the uh, that the big scary black knight with his uh, with his great sword is uh, is going to have. So, in conclusion, the book has a few problems. Uh, there's some lame editation. It would have been nice to have links, but the bookmarks are pretty good, so you don't really need them. And uh, and all in all, I think that the book does an okay job of uh, of fulfilling its goals of creating fun, balanced spells. So, if you were looking to purchase this product, I would think of it over and uh, and depending on whether you really wanted to look at a lot of kind of minor tweaky options, uh, I, I would probably get it. But if you were looking for here's 101 really solid first level spells, because I need to stat out. 10 or 15 unique wizards or whatever, I would would look elsewhere. Uh, Alright, so as I mentioned, it is Abjuration Week, and moving on, we'll be uh, be, uh, looking back at one of our most defensively oriented and controversial titles, Ancient Warriors, Sons of Sparta. Uh, 
the Ancient Warriors, Sons of Sparta, was the second book, actually, in the Ancient Warriors line, the first of which being Way of the Ninja. And uh, the, the point of the, uh, the series, so to speak, was to bring a historically renowned warrior, in the earlier case the ninja, and now the Spartan hoplite, to life at the, uh, as a fun and viable choice for characters in the Pathfinder game. Uh, when you're creating something like that, naturally there are some challenges you encounter. For one thing, you've got to create a class which is going to be different from the, uh, from the existing material after all. I mean, you could represent a Spartan as a fighter if you really wanted to. Not as well as I think you do as you would be able to with a, with a specific class, but if you were really stretching. So you, you need to make it feel distinctive there. And then you, you need to make it true to the thing you're doing, so you can't have a Spartan warrior that, I don't know, is really great at riding horses, because it's just not what they did. Uh, so when we went about making the product, we did some research on ancient Sparta and their warrior societies, and uh, we drew a lot of inspiration from that to come up with two main goals for the hoplite class, the center figure, if you will, of ancient warrior sons of Sparta. Uh, and basically, we, we had two goals for the class. One, Spartans were going to be more defensive than, spy, than fighters. It was going to really be their defining mark. And two, to stay true to the Spartan, they were going to be good at teamwork. Uh, after all, the Spartans were renowned for being a united body of fighters, uh, and it's a good reason we, you know, know of Spartans as the Spartans when we think of uh, of great Spartans, uh, rather than as, you know, Theodosius or whatever his name would would have been, uh, the great. So, um, yeah. So thus we uh, we created the hoplite going forward uh, as our uh, our champion class to represent. Spartan society. For those of you who, uh, for whatever reason, don't know, a hoplite was a heavily armored warrior in ancient Greece. They fought most of the uh, of the struggles there for a long time, and uh, the Spartan warriors would have been called hoplites as opposed to just just Spartans, uh, which is a uh, perhaps a common a more common mistake than, than people would really think. Anyway, uh, so. For those of you who have had the chance to look over Sons of Spartan, will notice that the uh, first thing the Hoplite class really gets is the ability to fight with a full-size spear or a long spear in one hand. We, we did this, obviously, because every picture you've ever seen of a Hoplite or a Greek warrior or anybody, really, from the time period, has a big bunch of them holding a big, big old spear in one hand and a big, heavy shield in the other. And the current rules just don't let you do that. You can have a really little spear and a big shield, but you couldn't have the uh, the traditional spear. Now, um, now there, there are good reasons for that, which we won't get into here, uh, but we definitely wanted that for the Spartans so that we could get that iconic imagery. Uh, inadvertently, we, we also, based on the way the feature is worded, created a character class that lets you dual-wield long spears, but we haven't uh, we haven't yet received any complaints about that. Um, so thank you to everybody who got Sons of Sparta and figured out that uh, that it was not designed to let you crazily dual wield long spears. If there's any DMs out there who are listening who have a player who is trying to dual wield long spears, feel free to tell him where he can shove that spear. Uh, the second one, in any case. Um, back to you, Josh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
Though, uh, on the flip side, if you are looking for a crazy character dual-wielding long spears, you should consider picking up Sons of Sparta. <laughs> Alright, um, yeah. So, moving on, the next, uh, the next thing we wanted to do to get the, uh, to get this Spartan class off was to give it a Pathfinder-style pick-and-choose menu class feature, you know. You see a lot of rogue talents, barbarian rage powers. Well, the Spartans have something called Spartan Disciplines. Uh, this is where a lot of the controversy showed up, was we, uh, we, we received a lot of, um, well, we received some reviews that, that talked about a wildly fluctuating power level here. And, uh, and I personally, I just don't think that there's a lot of merit to those claims. If you look over the list, I'm sure that you would agree that the abilities are pretty much in line with one another, and, uh, and indeed with the other sort of pick-and-choose abilities you get in other classes, like rogue talents, and that if you took two Spartans with wildly different selections, they would not be far apart from one another than, uh, than say, two barbarians who took wildly different rage powers. They would feel different, which is naturally the point of Spartan disciplines, so that you can differentiate Spartan A from Spartan B and have them feel more flavorfully fun. But uh, the point is they would be balanced well together, and I'm sure that once you start playing with them, you will find that to be true. Later, they get greater disciplines, also in the same sort of tradition, which are just better versions, and the same really applies here. Uh, it's a lot of stuff that we took sort of from the general... Spartan uh, Spartan lore that just didn't really fit very well in the defined class features. Sort of individual specialties that, that a Spartan warrior might have picked up during the course of his very long and never-ending military training. Uh, once you move on from the disciplines, however, uh, you get into a series of class features, pretty much all the rest of the class features, which have been designed to highlight goal two of the Spartan, which is to make him good as a team. Uh, he's got features that give him more shield defense when he stands next to somebody else with a shield defense to help uh, simulate the shield wall fighting experience that the Spartans were so famous for. They get a number of other tactics, one of which allows them to all suddenly move forward and his allies as well, which, uh, which was an actual tactic uh, for ancient hoplites. was actually how they did a lot of their damage was by suddenly surging briefly forward. And, uh, and we capture that here as well. There was some, uh, some concern uh, with these sort of teamwork abilities that a, uh, a group of Spartans is going, to, uh, is going to be much more powerful than a group of other characters, whereas a, uh, whereas a single Spartan is not going to get the same. I mean, he's just going to lose out on all these things. But it's not, it's not completely true. Uh, a group of Spartans is more effective than a party with one Spartan and, say, a fighter next to him, but, I mean, that's kind of how it should be. And uh, and it's not amazingly more so, because the abilities are static, they trigger once, so a fighter and a Spartan standing next to each other are going to be about as effective as a fighter and a, uh, and a Spartan, except for that the fighter will naturally accelerate offensively and in a variety of feats, whereas the, uh, the Spartan will receive more defensive bonuses. I say more because the fighter will receive some from the uh, from the Spartan class. Also, it's worth noting here that uh, while the Spartan class features, there, there are a lot of them where you, you gain bonuses for having allies next to you that are using a shield or allies, you know, moving in formation. Um, none of them 
none of them really have anything, none of them really require that that ally be a hoplite, so it is equally good to be standing next to a fighter who is using a, a tower shield or, or possibly other shields. I don't, uh, I don't have it right in front of me here, but possibly other shields. Heavy shield or tower shield. Heavy shield or tower shield. Uh, obviously, Josh mostly did the, the class. Uh, so, um, in any case, it's, it's equally good to be standing next to a fighter or a paladin who's using a shield uh, as it is to be standing next to another physical hoplite. So that gives you a lot more options as far as remaining relevant abilities, uh, though it is true that a, uh, a Spartan who tries to stand alone in a hallway uh, is probably not going to be as effective as one who can stand next to his friend. Which, uh, which ties pretty well back into Spartans are good at teamwork. Uh, as, a, as a character class that was designed to really capture that military discipline, uh, the, uh, the Spartan is... Uh, is really successful. Uh, the, our book also included a brief history section on uh, on Sparta for people looking to, uh, to capture that same historical flair and create a uh, society that mimics that, as well as information on how to incorporate a similar society in a uh, in a fantasy setting, which is uh, valuable for uh, DMs and players who really want the cultural experience. But uh, the the other major point of the book is a number of alternative class features uh, of which Alex was heavily uh, involved in the uh, in the creation of and I'm sure he'd love to tell you a little bit about that for the next few minutes yes yes I would um, so there were one of the uh, one of the more controversial sections of the book uh, the, the major controversies seem to be primarily uh, to do with the uh, those those hoplite disciplines and then we also got a lot of talk from our various reviewers about some of the alternate class features that were offered. We, we offer, the book offers alternate class features for a number of different classes. Not quite everyone in the in the core rule book, but there's a couple from the APG. There's You get the Cavalier and, uh, and the Oracle, uh, but not, for example, the Wizard. And I think there was another one that we, we skipped in there. We sort of, when we were picking those, we, we picked the ones that we felt we could come up with good Spartan class features for and there just wasn't, for example, with the wizard, there wasn't really anything that we felt was going to make the wizard particularly Spartan, uh, and and so instead we put in something like the the Oracle's Mystery of Delphi, which seemed like an automatic include. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that came up was uh, was a point, a very a very fair point that we did not follow the Pathfinder, the Pathfinder version of alternate class features using the archetypes, but instead used a more traditional 3.5 alternate class feature package where you can pick one for one, this class feature replaces that, this class feature replaces that, whereas the archetypes are more whole packages. Um, the reason that we did that at the time, the reason that I, I decided to go that way, is because um, one of the things that we go for, one of the things that we're known for largely at Necromancers of the Northwest ever since our first book, uh, Libra Vampire, is trying to apply a more modular approach to character creation and a sort of build-your-own Sort of, sort of set up, and you know. Also, at the time, I don't think I'd really gotten around to taking a very close look at those archetypes. Um, there's nothing. I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with archetypes. In fact, now we uh, we use those a little bit more than direct alternate class features. The thinking at the time, though, was that archetypes are a little restrictive, whereas we wanted something a little more modular. Uh, in the intervening time, when I took a closer look at archetypes, what I what I really realized and what I really like about them is that they can help us avoid the sort of bloat that 3.5 had where you could pick and choose the best class features from among two dozen books 
to have a character that looks nothing like the original class and is in fact about ten times more powerful. Uh, so this still allows you to have different options and gives the game designer a lot more control uh, to make sure it stays balanced while still giving the, the player you know useful ideas. So if we could go back and do it again, I would probably make archetypes here, but I, I don't think that it suffers for having the, the choices of direct alternate class features. Speaking of which, there's a couple of alternate class features I wanted to talk about directly. Um, the first of which is the Cavalier's alternate class feature. Um, the uh, There's a new order, the Order of Lycurgus. Um, Lycurgus being a famous uh, historical Spartan, um, who, I, if I remember correctly, was supposed to be their, their founder or something. One of the order abilities that you get in that order is something called Take the Hit, where at 8th level the Cavalier can shrug off blows which would slay lesser men. When he would be reduced to zero or fewer hit points by an attack, he is instead reduced to exactly one hit point. He may use this ability once per day at 8th level, plus additional time per day for every four levels beyond 8th, but must wait at least one minute between uses. So, as you may have realized, this will prevent a killing blow from slaying your, your Cavalier. Uh, however, unless he immediately receives some kind of healing or uh, the threat in combat is, is dealt with, uh, he will most likely be in very bad shape on the next round, as this ability doesn't let him continue to be protected. And in fact, uh, if his opponent is capable of making more than one attack in a round, he may, it may make no difference. Um, this was one... It, it's a cool ability, I think, to be able to, to just withstand, the, withstand death like that, but... Um, we, we got a little bit of complaints about it because people were thinking that it was a little overpowered. Uh, if anything, I would probably argue it's a little underpowered. Uh, though again, it is it is nice, especially character players who do, who are concerned about their character dying. It's a great way to make sure that he has an opportunity to get that healing from the cleric and and hopefully stay alive a little bit longer. Uh, so I'm not sure that I, I wouldn't say it's useless, but I certainly wouldn't say it's overpowered. Another another complaint we had was the uh, the sorcerer bloodline, which I wanted to talk a little bit about as well. Um, the bloodline in question is the uh, the warrior's blood, um, and one of the things that it does is for its for its bloodline arcana, it gives you a die eight hit dice instead of the normal die six, and your base attack bonus it goes up to three fourths. As a number of pe reviewers pointed out. Um, to get something similar in straight 3.5, you have to lose a certain amount of your spellcasting ability or otherwise suffer some sort of major penalty. In this case, that doesn't really happen, though I, I do think... I mean, it, it was taken into account as far as the uh, the overall power level of the rest of the class feature. Um, I would argue that anyone who's concerned about getting a die 8 as opposed to a die 6 is not paying very much attention. That's going to be about one hit point per class level. On average, it's a difference of 3.5 versus 4.5, so that's unlikely to cause a major effect on your game. It is possible that, that going up to 3 fourths instead of 1 half is going to be uh, more of an impact than I thought. My my, The reason why it was okay and the reason why it, it didn't seem to cause any issues in playtesting was that, generally speaking, a good sorcerer is probably not making that many attack rolls. Um... He'll make some, especially if he's focusing on rays and, and similar effects, but for the most part, he's got better things to do with his base attack bonus, and if he's spending all of his time swinging weapons or shooting off crossbow bolts, he's not really making the most of that spellcasting ability anyway, so I don't think it's going to be that big of a concern. Additionally, as was pointed out by some of the reviewers who defended that portion of the book, it's, um, it is a slightly higher 
power level in Pathfinder than in the original 3.5, and so that's another thing to bear in mind here. Moving on, because uh, I think we spent enough time talking about the Spartan book, it's now time for our segment, Best Beasts, where we weekly go over a specific monster and talk about whether or not that monster is, in fact, cool. This week's monster, uh, as a champion and paragon of uh, defense and therefore abjuration, is the Shield Guardian. Uh, and when you want to be a successful evil overlord, and let's face it, who doesn't? It's certainly better than being an unsuccessful evil overlord. You need minions that you can trust. This is important at every level of your evil organization, down to your lowest flunkies. But the more important the job, the more you need to be able to trust them. And what job is more important than protecting the life of the evil overlord himself? It's for this reason that shield guardians are just about the ultimate in personal protection. It's possible, if you looked incredibly hard, that you might, fi might just find a creature more powerful than a shield guardian that's willing to serve as your personal bodyguard, but you'll never find a more loyal one. And between a rock-hard, or harder, body and complete immunity to magic, your shield guardian will make a substantial obstacle for any opposition. But there's more to it than that. There's just something imposing about an eight-foot-tall warrior made of pure metal to whom each of your wishes is a binding command. It's a matter of prestige. Have no doubt that when you enter a room flanked by a shield guardian on either side of you, every eye in the room will be on you. And at the end of the day, that's more than worth their cost. Shield guardians are decidedly cool. Well, prestige is one way to look at it, and I think opulence would be more appropriate. Shield guardians are way too expensive for all but the most miserly of wizardly overlords to even have one, and we all know miserly is really cool. Uh, and uh, the, the, the fact is, the only wizards who actually employ a shield guardian are ones who want to walk around with their big giant iron monstrosity with a even more magical template applied to it and go, hey, look at mine, it's better than yours, and uh, and they're just the most snivelly, just least impressive, overcompensating wizards you will ever meet. Um, trust me, I, I know. Uh, you're never going to, uh, you're never going to impress anybody with your shield guardian. You might intimidate somebody, but you could do that with a dominated ice giant or something, and uh, they're just as loyal. Uh, anyway, uh, but but more importantly beyond that, since they're so expensive and uh, and and so statusy, I suppose uh, they're uh, they're just too far out of the grasp of actual cool people. Uh, think of all the cool wizards you uh, you can think of. How many of them have shield guardians? Give you a minute. That's right. None. Not one. Not ever has had a shield guardian. It's just a big, expensive, flashy piece of candy for uh, for high-priced, do-nothing fop wizards. And uh, that makes it decidedly uncool. So, what's our real opinion on shield guardians? Uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, we clearly both agree that shield guardians are, are a symbol of wealth, if nothing else. They're not, uh, they're not easy to come by, and they're, they're certainly potent if you have the, the funds for them. Yeah, uh, I mean, if you can afford a shield guardian and not be bankrupt by it, so that the only thing that people go is, oh, wow, look at that shield guardian. Uh, you know, can I come to your nice mansion? You have to go, I don't have a mansion, I've got a shield guardian. <laughs> then it's uncool. But if they, uh, if they go, wow, nice shield guardian, and you go, yeah, I got six more back at home, 
I mean, it's just cool. Uh, and uh, and as long as your shield guardian isn't a flesh golem, you're in good shape. Yeah, that's that's definitely worth pointing out. Now that shield guardians in Pathfinder are a template rather than a uh, rather than an actual uh, an actual monster, it is possible to have a flesh guardian shield golem and. Flesh, go- fle- flesh golems are never cool. There's there's nothing cool about flesh golems. They they cannot ever be cool. So today is in fact a twofer. Uh, shield guardians, they can be cool, but you have to be cool enough to earn it. And sh- flesh golems, never cool. Never once. Not ever. So now that that's out of the way, it's time for optimal options, where we're going to talk a little bit about some game mechanics and give you a little bit of advice on how to how to pimp your character, uh, whether it be NPC, PC, or what have you. Uh, obviously, since it's Abjuration Week, there are going to be Abjuration-themed options. Um, what I'm going to talk about is uh, the first-level Abjuration spell, Alarm. It's obvious to anyone who looks at the spell's description that it can be used to ward a relatively small area against intruders, allowing the caster to sleep with little fear of assassination. By centering the spell on the middle of your campsite, your entire party can safely sleep without worrying about setting watches, confident that the alarm will wake you should something occur in the night. But there's a lot more you can do with an alarm. For starters, if you have a few extra first-level spell slots, and at higher levels you're likely to, you can set an alarm at each of the most likely avenues of approach towards the campsite, 100 yards or so away, giving you plenty of time to rouse your party and prepare for an assault. You'll also know which way the interlopers are coming from as well, which can allow for better preparation. Alarm can also be used as a rather cheap form of divination, albeit a limited one. Suppose you set a trap, allowing your target to learn the location of a spellbook, artifact, or similar lure. You might place a fake, or there might be nothing there at all, uh, but the point is, he's going to come looking for whatever it is you, you've pointed him in the direction of. And, as long as that's a place that others are unlikely to go, you can set an alarm spell on the spot and hide just out of sight, waiting for the alarm to tell you when it's time to close in on your target. At the same time, if you're waiting for a target to leave his home, perhaps so that you can search it or burgle it, you can set the alarm on their f- front step, and as long as they have a private drive, leaving on a manor estate or somewhere else not in the middle of town where the spell's 20-foot radius area will extend into, say, a busy street, uh, you'll know whenever someone comes or goes, allowing you to keep easy tabs on the, the target without having to necessarily camp on his front lawn. You can also use it to ward your valuables if you're worried they'll be attacked for some reason. The spell only has an effective range of one mile, so you're unlikely to be able to use it to guard your tower or sanctum when you're far from home. But you could use it toward the entrance of a dungeon to ensure that nothing goes in or out. Uh, it's also an excellent way to, di- to avoid discovering that your mounts have been stolen or wandered off upon leaving the dungeon. Um, along the same lines, especially if your DM is... A uh, fan of having actual monsters wandering around and moving from place to place in a dungeon, uh, you can set that at an intersection to ensure that nothing sneaks up behind you as you go left rather than right. Um, finally, if you have a need to take any prisoners in the dungeon and don't want to take them along with you, this ensures you. This allows you to ensure that they don't escape and sneak up behind you or run off while your back's turned. Yeah. So, Alarm is a fascinating spell. Uh, I've decided to look at a few other fascinating abjuration spells. Obviously, when we think of abjuration spells, we think of the really good high-level ones, Mind Blank, uh, Dimensional Lock, and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. So, I've decided to talk about a few of the, uh, the easier-to-acquire ones, and, uh, and one of the more often-forgot-about high-level ones. So, I'm just going to start with Arcane Lock. It might seem like a little bit simple, obviously. Uh, all it does is lock something. But a lot of the time, all you really need to do is lock something. Uh, 
most of the uh, most of the time you need to run from somebody and you want to protect them protect yourself from them locking the iron door they'll have to pass through is going to stop most npcs in their tracks uh, even though it can be picked like any other lock uh, most brutal fighters and those kinds of folk just can't do that and as long as you pick a big heavy door they're not going to be able to uh, bash it down either so it's a good spell for the cowardly wizard looking to get out. Uh, another spell, similar to, uh, to Dimensional Lock, is Dimensional Anchor. A spell, I think, that, uh, that gets easily overlooked mostly because people aren't looking to do it very often. But for players who are repeatedly frustrated by, uh, by their DM having guys teleport away... Uh, perhaps the most effective way to save your character uh, from uh, from being attacked by a group of, uh, of malicious PCs. Uh, dimensional Anchor out and out stops that, and uh, it also hoses down a number of other ethereal-based uh, strategies. So it's something that you should keep in mind, preferably on a wand or something like that, so that you have it ready all the time for when you really need it to work. Uh, it's also good for for keeping like genies or whatever around, but but really, when when you need it for is is shutting down the teleportation gate and uh, and other spells like that, so that you know the big fighter with the axe can get his job done too. Finally, I'd like to talk a bit about sequester. Uh, sequester is one of those high level uh, the, uh, abjuration spells that uh, that if you're anything like me, really catches your eye when you uh, when you see it. And you go, wow, sequester, that's cool. And then, uh, and then you go, well, I'm gonna have a lot of trouble actually using this. Uh, I can't make people invisible, or I can make people invisible and comatose and impossible to scry on, but only if they're willing. And uh, so, how am I gonna really get the most out of that? Well, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna put like a symbol of blindness on an object and then sequester the object, uh, which is uh, which is not affected by being comatose, and its uh, invisibility or whatever is going to help that uh, that trigger rune go off and uh, and inflict extra damage or what have you secretly. Uh, anyway, right now it's time to move on to our feature. Uh, yes, and today we're going to be talking about a book that will recently have come out for you, but at the time that we're recording this is a little bit away from coming out. Uh, it's our January release uh, PDF here at Necromancers of the Northwest, and it is called A Necromancer's Grimoire, Steeds and Stallions. Uh, this book, obviously, in case you can't tell from the title, revolves largely around the uh, around the uh, the classic uh, concept of, of the Paladin's Mount and and actually, I mean, it, it, it applies really to uh, to horses of all kinds, uh, so uh, not uh, not specifically any any sort of class feature. What it does ultimately is uh, is it tries to invoke a little bit of the fantasy sense of the mount as a as a close companion and the the horse uh, that the that the knight rides as being uh, his his trusty steed or someone that he can really count on. And really, ultimately, what it what it tries to do is it tries to take horses uh, in the game from something that you sort of write down on your sheet and forget about, except to say, hey, I can move it 50, 50 feet around while I'm on this horse, and the DM occasionally going, all right, well, but as long as you're on the horse, you have to spend an action to get off of it when you get ambushed on the road. Uh, 
what it does is it tries to give it a little bit of personality and a little bit of interest and, and tries to really make it uh, make it a more fun and engaging part of the game by, by producing additional rules that, that have something to do that. It opens with an extensive section uh, talking about owning a horse. I spent a little bit of time researching the, uh, the real-life uh, needs and, and difficulties involved in, in owning a horse. Uh, it's amazing what you can find on the Internet these days. Uh, but anyway, uh, so it talks about things like you know how to feed your horse and how much they're going to need and, and the costs involved in stabling and, and that sort of stuff. And then the, the part that's probably of more interest to the people who will really want this book and likely already know a little bit about horses is it gives some thought in each of those sections to the way that a fantasy setting, uh, one where you have access to magic and and monsters and all sorts of strange things like that, can really impact those those aspects of horse ownership and, and that sort of thing. The book actually started um, from, from reading the Dungeon Master's Guide, the second edition AD&D Dungeon Master's Guide. Um, if I recall correctly... Uh, Justin, who used to be with us, picked up a copy at uh, picked up a copy at PAX or something quite some time ago, and uh, just on a whim, and we were idly flipping through it at some point, and I saw this strange table that talked about buying horses. And one of the cool things about the old second edition stuff is you could find all sorts of strange tables tucked into weird places that didn't really have anything to do with anything, and I thought that this was really fun. At the time, I was on a bit of a kick uh, where I had realized that you could put all sorts of tables and things into Excel and with a press of a button, generate all sorts of random stuff, which as a DM, I find very useful. And so I realized that with not that much work, I could probably take that entire set of tables and put it into Excel, and I spent a little bit of time doing that, and it was pretty fun. And so the more I thought about it, the more I thought it would be fun to, to take these mechanics where they had they had horse quality, which had to do with, obviously, the, uh, the overall quality of the horse, and they had a bunch of horse quirks, which were fun personality quirks that had to do with the horse. I thought, hey, this is really cool. I want to try using this in a game. And at some point, uh, we were looking to buy some horses, and the GM thought it was a cool idea, too. And so he let us, uh, he let us use that and, and have some fun with, uh, with buying fun horses where there was actually a difference between one horse and the next, and, and there, was, there was cool stuff with that. But mechanically, there wasn't really that much going on. And so what I started doing was I, I made mechanical effects for each of those qualities. I turned them into templates, which you could apply to horses, or theoretically, uh, you could apply them to all sorts of other mounts as well. So those of you who are planning on riding uh, hippogriffs or pegasi or, I don't know, um, giant Komodo dragons, uh, you know, fear not, you can apply those here as well. Um, I also then applied uh, applied mechanics to all of the quirks that were listed there, and above and beyond that expanded to, to add a bunch of additional quirks. Uh, so really, I took what was mostly a flavor mostly a flavor thing, and I, I, I really updated it not only for, for Pathfinder, but also gave it some mechanical effects, which I think really make it a lot more fun, because it's all well and good to say, you know, oh, hey, my, my horse is this, or oh, hey, uh, I'm, I'm a half-deity, or whatever, but unless you can apply some mechanical effects to the game it's not i don't really feel like it's there's really that much point and it's it's really if it doesn't have a mechanical effect in the game it's not really a a part of the game and so that was one of the things i wanted to do there and i think we did a pretty good job of that the rest of the book talks about a, a sort of a new sub mechanic called involved for uh, made for racing horses 
Uh, because obviously if you're going to spend all of that time getting your fancy horses, what are you going to do with them? You're going to race them. Uh, hopefully. Maybe not. Maybe you'll just, maybe you'll still just ride around on them on the countryside. But, uh, naturally one of the things you think of when you think of what are you going to do with a really high quality horse is you're going to race it. And so I thought it was important to have racing mechanics and give people something to do with those horses. And in order to do that, obviously, if any of you have been in a race in uh, some sort of 3.5 or Pathfinder game, you're aware that it is incredibly boring. Um, you you and the uh, the creature that you're chasing or, or racing against, if you have different speeds, then the outcome is obvious. And there's really no point in, in talking about it. Uh, except, I suppose, if the chaser has uh, has a faster speed, then, uh, then it's just a matter of how many rounds it's going to be before he catches up. If you have the same speed, then you move at that speed every round the same amount. Unless you can catch him in the first round, you're never going to catch him until it comes time to make endurance checks and someone eventually fails. Isn't that fun? So, instead, a whole new set of rules uh, were, were made up for horse racing, um, which... I think are very fun. I'm not going to go too much into the details of, um, but they specifically do not use the horses or, or mounts movement speed. Instead, there's a there's a new special speed score which is designed to uh, designed to sort of I guess in the fluff wise, it's designed to sort of be a, a closer look at at the horse's speed, especially in a in a race situation where they're sprinting and doing their best. Uh, and mostly it's just there to ensure that, that even though all horses are probably going to have the same speed, the races don't devolve into that, and you can start looking at that. But more importantly, um, what it really revolves around is a mechanic where you can wager a certain amount of horse, the horse's stamina, which you can then, uh, you can then make some rolls, and if they, they come out well, then the horse gets a speed boost for the race, and you, uh, or for the, for, for the round, and he can sort of move ahead, which makes it a much more dynamic and exciting uh, sort of experience. I also wanted to talk about, I, I specifically chose the wagering mechanic uh, because I felt it was kind of reminiscent of when you think of horse races, you think of going down to the tracks and you do some gambling, and I thought that would be kind of fun and resonate a little bit with, with people, and that's sort of why we, we do it that way. Um, ultimately, the, uh, the mechanics involved could be used for other kinds of races, or they could be used for... Uh, Instead of, say, just going down to the tracks and racing your horse, you know, God forbid, theoretically, you could use it to handle a, uh, an actual real chase where people are shooting at each other from horseback, that sort of thing. Uh, that's, that's all kinds of fun. Uh, I think it's a very good book, but this isn't really a review since I wrote the book as well, <laughs> so uh, you can sort of take that at whatever value you want. Uh, ultimately, though, I would definitely say that if you're looking for something to make your, your horses a little bit more interesting, a little bit more fun, uh, you could do a lot worse for 250 than uh, than picking up this. Uh, so um, if you're excited about that, definitely uh, don't hesitate to pick up the book or you know send me an email at arigs at necromancersonline.com. Uh, there's a hyphen in there, necromancers-online.com, and I would love to, uh, to hear what you think about it. Now, though... We're going to move on and talk about uh, and, and go on to our game mastery section, uh, which is where every week we go over our top ten list of tips and tricks on a particular subject. This week's particular subject, since it's abjuration week, uh, is admittedly not directly related to abjuration, but falls in a similar line. It's about how to keep your character alive. So, number ten, avoid the front lines. 
It's true that occasionally DMs will make a point of targeting the wizard in the back of the party, especially if the wizard is very effectively raining hellfire down on his foes, but most of the time the brunt of the risk will be borne by those up front, and an attack not aimed at you is unlikely to cause you any damage. Certainly, some characters aren't going to be able to avoid that. Um, you know, the upfront fighter is going to have to be the upfront fighter, um, if only because the rest of his party is going to run behind him. But, uh, for those of you who can, uh, pick up a bow whenever possible. Number nine, invest in a cloak of resistance. They're quite affordable, among the cheapest in magical protection. More to the point, falling prey to a single dominate person or disintegrate is one of the quickest ways for your character to die, and by far one of the most frustrating. It's something that can come up out of nowhere, you didn't see it coming, all of a sudden you're dead. Uh, number eight, don't be afraid to use lots of limited-use magic items, especially healing magic items. Uh, so stock up on wands, scrolls, and, and potions, that sort of thing. Stuff that's going to let you get out of hairy situations, and stuff that's going to let you keep up your stamina over the, the course of a fight. Something that'll really sort of save your bacon is definitely worth investing in, even if you're not necessarily going to be able to use it indefinitely. Number seven, fight smart. Whenever possible, find out about the opposition in advance. Make a plan of attack. Know who your primary target is and how you intend to take him out. Find out what your opponent's strengths are and how best to protect yourself from them. Finally, learn their weaknesses so you can better exploit them and bring the fight to a quick conclusion. Number six, end fights quickly. A good offense is the best defense, and your enemies can't kill you if they're already dead. Unless, of course, they're undead, but that's another issue entirely. The thing to watch out with here is you don't want to end fights quickly by charging alone into the middle of an enemy uh, in the middle of an enemy encampment uh, make sure that you're fighting smart as well as quickly or else you're, you're just going to die in a suicidal charge uh, number five prepare for death for a scant 2200 GP you can hire a wizard to cast clone on you after that for 600 GP per month plus perhaps a little for storage space you can hire a low level cleric to tend your clone with gentle repose as a sort of death insurance if anything happens to you, you come back to life, albeit a bit weaker for the experience. Number four, don't be afraid to rest. Uh, if you're in a long dungeon and sometimes, <clears throat> sometimes you're, you're a bit weak, you've used up your spells, your cleric's used up his spells, uh, sometimes it feels like you really should press on. That princess is waiting for you and you really need to save her. But you're not going to save her if you get killed by goblins. So... If you're not sure if you're really going to be able to handle the next encounter, don't chance it. Just find somewhere to rest, rest up, and then move on. Your DM may not always love you for it, but as long as you don't spend too much time waiting, you should be fine. Especially if you make sure that you're, you're resting when you need it, and not when you feel tired. Uh, number three, traps. Always check for them. It's worth the wait, uh, even if you have to take 20 sometimes. Um... People say that it's going to slow the game down, and it's certainly going to slow down your movement speed, but ultimately, uh, it doesn't take that long to declare that the rogue checks for traps uh, as you move down the hallway. Um, a couple of rolls are made, or if you, have, uh, if you have a certain rogue talent or two, no rolls are made, you just automatically get them. Uh, whatever the case, traps are a very nasty surprise and one that can quickly turn deadly, and so you want to make sure that you're prepared for them. If your rogue is not looking for traps... Don't be afraid to tap him on the shoulder and let him know that that's what you expect. Or maybe just hire yourself some sort of, uh, some sort of trap monkey who can, uh, who can move ahead of you and, and suffer the brunt of any, uh, any deadly devices. Uh, number two, have an escape plan. No matter how much you try to protect yourself and try to avoid the thick of the battle, at some point your best blade plans will be overturned and you'll find yourself in a bad place. 
Make sure you keep a Dimension Door, Gaseous Form, or similar escape plan ready. If you can't cast spells, consider a Cape of the Mountebank or similar item that can still let you get access to that sort of magic. And the number one tip for how to keep your character alive, pick your battles. It may not feel very heroic to run from an encounter three or four CRs above your party's level, and of course D&D is all about playing a hero, but if you want to stay alive, occasionally you'll need to recognize that discretion is the better part of valor. Unless that dragon is literally going to eat the princess right now, you can always come back later when you're prepared and can fight with an advantage. And now it's time for one of our favorite parts of the uh, of the podcast, Seed to Story, where we're going to roll a die percent, consult the random table in the DMG for uh, 100 adventure ideas, and once we've got a little sentence or two seed there, we're going to spend a couple of minutes expanding it and uh, and turning it hopefully into a real adventure. So, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and roll here. And I see a 7. It looks like 87. What is that, Josh? An earthquake uncovers a previously unknown dungeon. Well, that sounds exciting. Uh, I'm not sure how much how much work we're going to have here. Our work may be, be a bit cut out for us. Obviously, the first thing to consider is what's special about this dungeon? Well, the first thing is that it was covered up by the earth. So it's an old dungeon, presumably. Or... Even better, maybe it was sealed up for another reason, and that sort of gives you a clue as to to what kinds of things you might expect to find there. So I, I think old and mysterious is uh, is what the dungeon should be like. Well, that's that's definitely something. Another thing I suppose we could also take a look at um, is maybe maybe it's not so much about the dungeon, maybe it's about the earthquake. Uh, is someone maybe using earthquakes to dig for dungeons? Are they looking for something? Is this it? Or maybe uh, maybe we just have to worry about, is there a mad wizard who's bent on finding a lost tomb and he's happy to dig the continent apart to find it? Would that be an interesting adventure? Well, it would certainly get us away from, and then you go down and kill the mummies and, <laughs> uh, and take their treasure. So it definitely it gets points there. Uh, so now you've got to figure out why why there's earthquakes. Uh, it, it could be an evil wizard looking uh, looking for something. It it could be a a completely harmless wizard who's uh, who's digging for gold for the king or whatever the government out of hand as it usually is. Uh, that would be fun. A uh, uh, government mining program run by uh, run by the local arcane university. Uh, is digging for gold, destroys a couple of cities along the way, and then accidentally uncovers the tomb of, uh, I don't even know. Uh, why, don't, why don't we say some sort of Draco Lich? That sounds suitably impressive. Yeah, so he uncovers the tomb of, uh, of Mr. Shagnasty, the, uh, the Draco Lich, and the whole world is doomed, unless the wizards set things right. Or the PCs kill the Draco Lich, but probably, uh, probably they should bury him again. As much as much as it would obviously be an issue of going down and uh, and heading into the the dungeon, I think you're right there. I think the uh, the most interesting way to try and expand this plot is perhaps that Draco Lich is way too tough. Uh, may take a little bit of time and effort from the DM to really pound this into the heads of his players, uh, but. If you can really get that, that point across, then you have the interesting conundrum of, okay, the Draco Lich is waking up, but maybe he hasn't quite escaped yet, and the PCs still have a chance to try and seal the place in. Of course, it's not going to be as easy as it was uncovered. You can't just uh, 
can't just hope that the earthquake will shift things in the right direction. But then maybe you can have an interesting quest where the PCs have to find a way to seal that tomb again before the Draco Lich gets free. Yeah, so your quest is probably going to involve a number of, uh, of different elements. If you really want to make it a big, long adventure and you don't want to send the PCs into the dungeon... A good way to do that is to have them find a temporary seal because that Draco Lich is coming out now and they, uh, they they need to hold them in until a more permanent solution can be found. And then having to go maybe deal with those arcane wizards or, you know, go, go find uh, some way to move a ton of earth or, you know, talk to the gods or something. But a temporary fix followed by a, a more involved solution that's probably going to revolve around a lot of doing mean quests and, uh, and chatting up wizards. All right, so now that we've got that out of the way, it's time for our final segment, if you can call it that. It's the poll of the week, and this week uh, I've got a, a bit of a question for you. So, Mage Armor is a conjuration, parentheses, creation spell, which creates armor made of pure force. Typically, protective spells, like shield, are abjuration, while spells that manipulate force tend to be evocation. What school do you think Mage Armor should be, and why? Uh, if you have thoughts on that subject, please don't hesitate to drop by our forums at www.necromancers-online.com, uh, where we'll hopefully have a lot of uh, discussion on that. And then also definitely don't hesitate to send us an email. Uh, you can reach me at ariggs, A-R-I-G-G-S, at necromancers-online.com, and Josh can be reached at jzabak, J-Z-A-B-A-C-K at necromancers-online.com. That is it for today. Our podcast is complete. Uh, Please tune in next week when we'll be discussing a number of other things, and definitely don't hesitate to check out our website where you can find uh, articles the other four days of the week uh, with new content for players and DMs uh, with things like new class features, new magic items, new spells, and that sort of thing. Uh, This is Alex and Josh saying thank you very much for listening and have a great day.